going to continue our study through the Thessalonian correspondence tonight as we begin this second letter of Paul's. This evening as we take up the second letter, I want to take up the subject as well of gratitude or thankfulness in the Christian life with a specific focus upon uh, being grateful in the trials that we face. As we think about the subject of gratitude, our aim is to understand why we should always be thankful to God for what he has done in our lives and in the lives of those around us. And having understood this, to respond accordingly with consistent and persistent prayers of thanksgiving toward God. But I don't want to guilt you into begrudging gratitude, for that would not be true thankfulness. Rather, I want to help you see what God has done in your life, what he's doing in our life together, so that thanksgiving will naturally flow from your heart toward him. We're going to approach this task as we look to 2 Thessalonians 1 by looking at Paul's own expression of gratitude for the Thessalonian Christians. As we do, we're going to seek to understand the value system that prompted Paul's expression of thanks. So if you found your place in me, with me in 2 Thessalonians 1, would you follow along and we'll read the first four verses. Paul, Silvanus, and Timothy to the church of the Thessalonians and God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. We ought always to give thanks to God for you, brothers, as is right, because your faith is growing abundantly, and the love of every one of you for one another is increasing. Therefore, we ourselves boast about you in the churches of God for your steadfastness and faith in all your persecutions and in the afflictions that you are enduring. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we pray that as we come to your word, you would bless our fellowship and bless our study this evening. Lord, we pray that you would prompt us to express our thanksgiving to you in a way that is right and true, in a way that flows from our hearts, not as an expression of guilt, but as an expression of of love and, and true thankfulness because you have done so much in our lives. And as we look at this example of this early church and the example of the Apostle Paul, may we see in their expressions of faith and thankfulness and love and and, uh, steadfastness the appropriate response to what you've done and also a proof of your grace in their lives and a similar proof for us that we can trust you, that you will demonstrate the same grace in our lives as well. So we pray, O Lord, that you would work through your word, draw us closer to you, that we might respond rightly as we see the faith to which you call us. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, having just finished 1 Thessalonians, it's a bit tempting to skip over these first two verses because they are so similar, so remarkably similar to what we find in the first letter, but I think that would be a mistake, Um, not just because uh, they're here and Paul repeats himself, so we should consider what he has to say, but also because there are slight differences that that I want to draw your attention to. Now, I do know that if you're you're reading in something like the King James Version, the first uh, couple verses in both books will read almost identically, Um, and there are, I'll just be honest and straightforward on this point, there, there are various manuscripts that are available, and, and there's some differences in First Thessalonians. As best as I can tell, and as best as uh, many, uh, the way many scholars take it, is probably somewhere along the way, uh, 
a scribe copying First Thessalonians uh, changed that greeting to make it look more like Second Thessalonians. But it's also possible that that didn't happen and someone simplified it along the way. I just want to say that you'll see that kind of thing in the footnotes in your texts, that there are sometimes times when we encounter uh, texts where we're not 100% certain what the original text said. Uh, your translation will likely be very straightforward with this point, and what I want to point out to you is almost in every case it makes very little difference uh, in the grand scheme of things. No, no cardinal doctrine of the Christian faith is ever affected by that. But I do draw your attention to that because I do want to compare the differences between the greeting in 1 Thessalonians and 2 Thessalonians. So as we look at those, let me just read for you again the way Paul opens his letter in 1 Thessalonians chapter 1. Paul, Silvanus, and Timothy, to the church of the Thessalonians, and God the Father, and the Lord Jesus Christ, grace to you and peace. Now here we come to 2 Thessalonians chapter 1, and we read a slight difference. And I want you to just listen again and pay attention and, and see if you catch it. Paul, Silvanus, and Timothy, to the church of the Thessalonians, and God our Father, the Lord Jesus Christ, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Did you catch the difference? In the first place, just one little word. God the Father and our Lord Jesus Christ. Now, God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. And in the second place, the additional statement that this grace and peace which Paul sends is from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, there's not a change in the relationship that the Thessalonians have with God. He hasn't, God himself has not changed. But both texts express important truths. As I said this morning, if you were here to hear the sermon this morning, we recognize that eternally God is Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And so God, the Father, has, he has always been the Father in this eternal sense, independent of our relationship to him. But we also recognize that through faith in Christ, we have come into a new relationship with God where we acknowledge him as our father through the adoption that we have inherited, the adoption that we have come into. We have been adopted as sons of God because of Christ, because of what he's done for us through faith in Christ. And so we have this enormous privilege where we can relate to God as our father, not just the father in that eternal sense, but God our father. And we do this because we relate to Christ Jesus as our Lord. And all of this is possible because of what Paul says. Something he said in the first letter to the Thessalonians, but he makes it abundantly clear here that the grace and peace is not Paul's grace and peace to send. He merely is a messenger. He's merely carrying the message. You see how he diminishes himself in this greeting? Just like in the first letter, Paul, Silvanus, and Timothy. He says nothing about himself. Now in other places, he'll say Paul, an apostle of Jesus Christ, or he'll say Paul, a bondservant of Jesus Christ or a servant of Jesus Christ because in those particular letters that he's writing to different churches the way in which he introduces himself is important to the message if he has to assert his apostolic authority as he does for instance when he writes to the Galatians then he will do it if he wants to emphasize his humility as a servant of Christ he'll do it as he does in his letter to the Philippians but here he simply introduces himself with his co-laborers Silvanus and Timothy as the sender of this message, but not really the one who is sending the grace and peace that he sends to this church. That grace and that peace, those two words are words that Paul carries as a message from God, our Father, and the Lord Jesus Christ. And as we considered in 1 Thessalonians, and we consider again, 
These two words really do encapsulate the truth of the gospel for us. The gospel is a message of grace, God's free and unmerited favor to us. This gift that we've received of salvation that we did not earn and we don't deserve. And that gift can be summarized in the words, in that single word, peace. We have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ because he bore for us the wrath of God on the cross. When we went through 1 Thessalonians, as we came to the end, we considered various pictures of that final judgment that will one day come. And we're going to see that Paul takes up that same theme in 2 Thessalonians. We're going to look to that idea next week as we continue in this letter and in the weeks to come. But here, when we think about that final judgment, we recognize that that's not a judgment that will be poured out upon us. No, we have peace with God. And this is a wonderful and glorious privilege that we have peace with God. One we don't deserve, but one we have received through Christ. We should never grow tired of reflecting upon this truth. We should never tire of proclaiming it to one another. We should never tire of giving thanks to God for it. Because this is what our entire hope depends upon. And this we'll see as the foundation then for what Paul is going to express of his own thankfulness. As he reflects upon what God continues to do by his grace in the lives of the Thessalonians. Paul, what wells within his heart is an immense thankfulness. Look at what he says here as he continues in this letter. We ought always to give thanks to God for you, brothers, as is right, because your faith is growing abundantly. And the love of every one of you for one another is increasing. Therefore, we ourselves boast about you in the churches of God for your steadfastness and faith in all your persecutions and in the afflictions that you are enduring. Here, Paul thanks God because God is worthy of this gratitude. He says, as is right, that's the idea that he's conveying, that God is worthy of this thankfulness. But consider that what he does not thank God for. We've already seen how the greeting is very similar to that first letter. But Paul is, there's a lot more similarities that we need to consider. Paul is writing to the same church, and in large measure, their situation has not changed very much. The first letter was probably written sometime between the years 49 and 51 A.D., and within one to two years after that, the second letter would have been written as well. And remember, as we look through 1 Thessalonians, what that church was facing. Intense persecution, or as we look to Acts even, we considered the narrative of how the gospel came to them, how Jason, one of their number, was forced to pay a security to the rulers in, the, uh, in Thessalonica because of, uh, because of Paul's preaching and the way that it had stirred up riots and the way that many had... Uh, caused problems in the city. Paul had to flee by night, and uh, Jason was accused before their rulers of having allowed this troublemaker, he was called, one who has turned the world upside down, allowed him and his co-workers to labor in that place and unsettle the people of Thessalonica. And so there was uh, intense opposition, and that flowed forth in persecutions that Paul references in the first letter. And it uh, flowed forth in various trials of different kinds. And maybe even a subtle suggestion toward the end that some had died. Could have been death by natural causes or some of their number could have died in persecutions. As we saw, if you remember, in chapter 4 of 1 Thessalonians, when Paul wrote to encourage them about those who had fallen asleep so that they might not grieve as those who have no hope. They're facing intense persecution in that first letter. And the point I want to make here is that things haven't really changed. 
they're still facing persecution. And so what we don't find here is Paul saying, I thank God that the storm has passed. I thank God that your life is easy now. I thank God that things are turning around and people are coming around to see the truth of the gospel and your church is growing and you're becoming more influential and more powerful and your, uh, your, your, your wealth is being restored. Paul says nothing of that kind. Nor does he thank God for uh, mundane, ordinary things. Not that he wouldn't or he would encourage us not to. But here, the thing that he thanks God for is for the increasing love and growing faith and steadfast hope that these Thessalonians demonstrate in the midst of this ongoing situation of opposition and persecution. You see, for many, we only thank God for little things that go right in our lives. The thought is well intended, and we do want to acknowledge that everything we have is due to God. We ought to give thanks for the meals that are set before us, for uh, uh, the, the provision that we have from uh, good day's work, for a beautiful day outside, and things like this, for family, and so on and so forth. But if all of our gratitude owes only for those kind of mundane things in our life, or even those great successes when things seem to go well from a worldly perspective, then we're not giving all the thanksgiving that God is due. We're not giving to God all the thanksgiving that is due him. I thank God that I had a good day at work with no particular troubles sometimes. I thank God that my children are obedient. But that's not the only reason why I have to give thanks to God. It's not my only source of gratitude is what I'm trying to say. Now, think about the way that the religion that the Thessalonians came out of, the Thessalonians came out of. In Thessalonica, they had the pagan religion, the Roman, the Greek pagan religion. And they had all these various gods in the Greek pantheon. They were assigned this different responsibilities over human life, and so they would have looked to the god Poseidon to bless them before they went on a journey to sea. And they would have looked to the goddess Demeter to bless their harvest. And they would have sought the help of the goddess Artemis before hunt. And they would have looked to the god Ares if they had to go to war. The Romans changed the names of these gods, but the thought was very much the same. And in our own age, there are some traditions where they simply take these various responsibilities and assign them to a saint. So many might pray to St. Anthony, for instance, when they've lost a possession that it might be restored. Or they might pray to St. Christopher before going on a journey. It's not very different from paganism. But in our own expression of faith, we make a similar, similar mistake. Not by outsourcing the little things to a pantheon of false gods or to a company of dead saints, but by treating the one god the way the Romans thought of their false deities. We consolidate all of these things under the one true god, as is right, but we still only find it in our hearts to thank him, we still only find it in our hearts to thank him when things seem to go right from this perspective. Thus we neglect his word concerning the life to which he has called us and the perseverance and endurance that he produces within us. We thank God when things go well and we ask, for, ask him for ordinary and mundane blessings. But when we face trials, there's not very much gratitude in our hearts. And in our despair, we may even neglect to bring our requests to him point I want to make then is that this is not the example that we have in the Apostle Paul before us, nor is it the instruction that he gives us. In his own situation, he says, we ought always to give thanks to God for you, brothers, as is right. As we read on, we see that these brothers and sisters in Christ live their lives with a great deal of difficulty. 
But nevertheless, Paul found reason to give thanks to God for them and for what God was doing in them and through them. Why? Well, if we're looking for reasons to thank God, even when we face trials, we need only open our eyes and look at one another. Then we will see that we have a great many reasons that should cause us to give thanks always. Why? Because the Christian life, this Christian life, this new reality of grace and peace that I spoke about, it is a gracious work of God from first to last. If you are in Christ, it is because God has brought you to himself. If he has done that, we should thank him for it. And as we see that he is preserving us in this new reality, we should thank him all the more. Consider the contrast. The Greeks and the Romans looked to their gods for ordinary blessings or for earthly successes. But when we look to God, we recognize that he has already done all that is necessary for our eternal salvation. And so as we look at the trials that we face, we ask that he would preserve us, trusting fully that he will faithfully preserve us through all of those great difficulties in this life into eternity, not just for earthly successes or mundane blessings, but for an eternal inheritance that he has stored up for us. And in the midst of this, as we wait for that day, the fullness of that inheritance, we recognize that we already have this great and cherished blessing. We are his children. What an enormous blessing. What a reason to give thanks to our God. And that's what Paul is thanking God for. Because he's seeing in the lives of the Thessalonians the evidence of that reality in their lives. God is holding them fast. He's causing them to grow in faith. He's causing them to grow in love. And he's causing them to remain steadfast in their faith, in all their persecutions, and in the afflictions that they are enduring. Now, I want to look closer then at these things, these specific reasons that Paul gives for his gratitude when he thinks about the Thessalonian Christians. As I said, he's not thanking God because they're prosperous and powerful, and they're not. He's thanking God because they are growing as Christians despite their present circumstances. The Christian life, above all, must be marked by three great virtues. Faith, hope, and love. We have faith in Jesus Christ. We believe the good news that we have heard concerning his death and his resurrection and the salvation that is offered to us through faith in him. We hope in the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. And we love one another as we are loved by our Savior, Jesus Christ. You see that in 1 Corinthians 13, Verse 13, that above all, these three virtues are the greatest Christian virtues. And love is the greatest. Faith, hope, and love are the hallmarks of the Christian life because they are the appropriate response of everyone who follows Christ. We saw in Paul's first letter that the Thessalonians were already exemplary in this regard to these three things. Remember his prayer of gratitude at the beginning of that letter? In verse 2 of chapter 1 in 1 Thessalonians, we give thanks to God always for all of you, constantly mentioning you in our prayers, remembering before our God and Father your work of faith and labor of love and steadfastness of hope in our Lord Jesus Christ. We see those three cardinal virtues, faith, hope, and love, and they already demonstrated it. Their faith and their love were memorable and demonstrable, and their hope was enduring. Now in 2 Thessalonians 1 verse 3, we also see that these Evident and enduring virtues were increasing among the Thessalonian Christians. That is why Paul finds reason to always thank God. His gratitude does not depend upon present prosperity 
but upon the ongoing work of God in the lives of his people. God once again demonstrated his faithfulness in the life of this early church by causing their faith to grow and their love to increase. In the case of the Thessalonians, their faith and love was so remarkable that Paul even boasted about them in the other churches. Now, we shouldn't equate that boasting with the kind of sinful boasting that is never appropriate in the Christian life. What makes this boast different? Paul boasts about the Thessalonians, but he does not boast in them. Reading this in the context, we recognize that their endurance and their faith is a gift from God, a gift for which Paul thanks God. Therefore, as he boasted about the Thessalonians, he was boasting in God, and the particular boast concerned the way in which God had preserved and increased the faith and love that was already evident in their lives. As I said earlier, and as we've seen, they faced many persecutions and afflictions. Paul doesn't number all of them. He doesn't list them for us, but we know that they are real. They persevered in the midst of those things. The only explanation for their perseverance, the only explanation for the perseverance of any Christian in the midst of hostility and persecution is that God preserves us faithful. Thus Paul thanked God and boasted of God's work in their lives. We are encouraged to pray and thank God in the very same way. We ought not to be a people who are so downtrodden by our difficulties, however great they may be, that we find little room for gratitude. You see, if we live thankless lives, it's not because God has not been gracious and faithful to us. It is because we are so blinded by our own desires that we fail to see how extraordinarily gracious he has been. I don't mean to be heartless. We may not face the kind of persecution the Thessalonians faced, but we do face real hardship in the course of this life. And I'm not suggesting that we should never grieve these hardships. I'm not telling you to have that kind of happy-go-lucky and aw-shucks attitude that a person has when he whistles at a funeral. And when he comes to that funeral very happy and smiling and seems to not be struck by the loss of a loved one. It's not what I'm saying. We should grieve things that should cause us to grieve. Jesus wept when Lazarus died. We should grieve the, grieve the pains of life in this fallen world. We simply do not grieve in the way that the world grieves, as those without hope. We grieve as people who have hope and what does that look like? It's grief that is mixed with joy. It's grief that is mixed with gratitude. As we face these ordinary hardships in this fallen world, and we cer certainly will, and I know that many of you already have in your life, and are, some of you are facing great hardships even right now. Some are unique to the Christian life, and some are typical of our experience in this world. We or a loved one may visit our doctor and receive a uh, grave diagnosis with an uncertain prognosis. We may embark on a new business venture, seek a new job, or try to advance in an old one, only to meet frustration, difficulty, and failure at every turn. Our relationships with family or friends may break down despite our best efforts to preserve them. A brother, sister, parent, child may reject the gospel in the course of time and pursue a life apart from Christ. We can go on. There are many trials that we face in the course of life, and of course, that last one is unique to the Christian life, the straining of the relationships that we cherished because of our faith. What do we do when we face these trials? Do we find room for thanksgiving even as we grieve? How can we? By remembering the nature of the hallmark virtues of the Christian life. We can express the hallmark virtues of our life as Christians simply as faith, hope, and love, but we will be helped to recall the words that Paul coupled with these virtues in his first letter, a work of faith 
a labor of love, and steadfastness of hope. In turn, we consider how these words enhance our understanding of these hallmark virtues. We will see how present circumstances, whatever they may be then, still they encourage us to hold fast in our faith, to continue in our hope, even as we face these trials. And as we do that, as, our, as that faith endures and it grows, and as that hope becomes evident, and as our love for one another abounds, even as we face those trials, we realize God has not let us go. God has not abandoned us. That is the evidence that God is still working in us and he's still preserving us. And it should encourage us to rejoice and to give thanks, even as we grieve in the face of other difficulties and trials. Now think of the, the first two virtues tonight. Next week we're going to look more closely at this virtue of hope. But tonight I want to focus more on the virtues of faith and love. And I want to recall to your mind once again what Paul said in that first letter when he spoke of a work of faith and a labor of love. Here he notes that their faith is growing, and it's not just growing a little. It's abounding. And in a similar way, their love for one another continues to increase. Now, we need to remember something about faith. We know that we are justified by faith apart from works of the law. But we also know that faith apart from works is dead. The first verse comes from Romans 3.28, the second from James 2.26. And we wonder, how do we reconcile these two ideas? To borrow a turn of phrase from Charles Spurgeon, they're friends, they need not be reconciled. But the idea still has some tension in our minds. And let me explain it. The basis for our justification, our righteousness for, before God, that is the act by which God declares a sinner to be righteous. The basis for that is our faith alone based on Christ's righteousness alone. That is to say, God declares us to be righteous by crediting our faith to us as righteousness. We don't earn that salvation. We don't earn that justification. We receive it as a gift. In this transaction, our sin is assigned to Christ's ledger, so to say. He fully paid that debt on the cross, and his righteousness is assigned to our account. So we are justified by faith apart from our works, apart from works of the law. Nevertheless, true faith never stands alone. It is evident in works of faith. Consider two examples that James would give us in James chapter 2, Rahab and Abraham. Rahab was an example of faith. She believed in the God of Israel, and so she rejected the gods of her people. She even rejected her people and sought to attach herself to the people of Israel. She performed a work of faith when she hid the spies. And if you're unsure that it was a work of faith, you only need to look to Joshua 2, verses 8 through 13, and you see her wonderful confession about the God of Israel, how he is the true God. And though she risked her own life, possibly risked being killed by her own people in Jericho, she would rather face that than to face the wrath of Almighty God. She expressed her faith in a work by helping these spies from Israel. In the same way, Abraham believed that God would keep his promise to make him a great nation through his son Isaac. And so when God said, take your son, your only son Isaac, and sacrifice him, what did Abraham do? Abraham did a work of faith. He didn't question it. He didn't try to solve the problem. He just believed that if God made a promise that involves Isaac, and God is now telling me to do something that calls into the question this 
promise. I'm going to trust that God will somehow make it all work out, whether by raising him from the dead or providing a substitute at the last minute. And we know that God ultimately provided that ram as a substitute. We can see that there in Genesis 22. The faith that Abraham expressed much earlier in Genesis, in chapter 15, came to its full fruition as, it, as he demonstrated that faith in a work of faith. That is why faith without works is dead and useless. We could just as easily say, faith without works is not really faith at all. It's not the same as saying that works save. It is the faith that saves. The works are the evidence and the fruit of that faith. So how does this encourage us to be grateful? And what does this tell us then about the Thessalonians? Just this, that the truth of their faith, the reality of their faith, is evident in these works of faith that Paul saw at first and now that he recognizes as increasing, that he says they're growing and they're increasing. And for this, too, he gives thanks to God. In the same way in our own lives as we see works of faith, people working out their faith in our midst, as I see you doing things that no one would do unless they really believe the promises of God, I have great reason to give thanks to God. that He's working in your lives. And likewise, when you see that in the lives of one another, in your own life, you have a great reason to give thanks to God. It is a sign that God is still with you, that he is continuing to work in you and through you, to will and to work for his good pleasure. And he's promised to do that to the very end. So when we see that, let us give thanks for that. And the same with these demonstrations of love. Here, Paul, in 1 Thessalonians, he spoke about a labor of love, and here he speaks about that love ever-increasing. He must have said word, these words almost like a, proud father. You see, we can remember what he said in 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, how he wrote in verse 9, now concerning brotherly love, you have no need for anyone to write to you, for you yourselves have been taught by God to love one another, for that indeed is what you are doing to all the brothers throughout Macedonia. But we urge you, brothers, to do this more and more. And as he wrote this next letter, he must have reflected upon those words and thought, they're doing just that. And for that, once again, I give thanks to God. The love that they showed at first, the love about which he said, you have no need for anyone to write to you, and yet urged them to do it more and more, they did show that love more and more. It was probably hard at times. It was a labor of love. It wasn't just an emotional feeling, a sentiment that they had in their hearts, but it was something that flowed forth in action where they demonstrated that love in real-world ways, by helping people in need, by serving them, by uh, strengthening those who are weak, by giving of their assets and of their time to serve and help others. And for that, Paul gave thanks for that growing faith and that growing love. Now, why? Why should we look at that same thing and say, that should cause us to thank God with, with just eternal gratitude that is never-ending, that is flowing forth from our heart. The answer here, then, has to do with the value system that stands behind what Paul is saying as he expresses this gratitude. In Luke 12, 51 through 53, we are reminded that the Christian life will bring difficulty. There, Jesus said this, Do you think that I have come to give peace on earth? No, I tell you, but rather division. For from now on, in one house, there will be five divided, three against two, and two against three. They will be divided, father against son, and son against father, mother against daughter, and daughter against mother, 
mother-in-law against her daughter-in-law, and daughter-in-law against mother-in-law. What we see there is Jesus telling his disciples that they can expect persecution to even divide their families, to even cut right through their closest relationships. It'll bring pain. It'll bring real loss, loss that seems in many senses to be irreplaceable. And yet, when we think about these realities, we also need to remember what Jesus said to Peter. When Peter said to him, see, we have left everything and followed you, in Mark 10, 29 through 30, Jesus responded, Truly I say to you, there is no one who has left house or brothers or sisters or mother or father or children or lands for my sake and for the gospel who will not receive a hundredfold now in this time houses and brothers and sisters and mothers and children and lands with persecutions and in the age to come eternal life. Jesus was teaching his disciples that though they were going to face these persecutions and though they were going to lose a great many things, even those cherished relationships, what they would receive, not just in eternity, but even in this life, would be a hundred times more valuable. Now, some people will take those things and they'll twist them in such a way where they, they say, well, see, if you, if you uh, lose your house, then you can expect that God will give you a mansion that is ten times more valuable in terms of earthly finances. It's not quite what Jesus is saying. Let me illustrate the idea in a slightly different way. I think many of you have heard of Warren Buffett, the great investor of the last hundred years. And uh, he, he has this method of investing that's sometimes called value investing. It's not that he looks at a company and he looks down, uh, imagines what will happen for that company in the future and says, I think this company will grow in the next 10 or 20 years. But rather he looks at the financials for a company and he says, I think this company is more valuable than people realize. I think this company already is worth much more than it costs on the stock market. And so he buys up all that stock, buys up shares of that company, and he waits for people to recognize how truly valuable that thing is. And he's done it well. He's become a, a, one of the richest men in the world by investing in that way. And he's encouraged others to invest in that same way. I'm not trying to give you investment strategy here, but I'm using this as an illustration to help you to see what Jesus is saying. Jesus is saying that though you lose a lot by following him, though you will face trials, some ordinary and some that are unique to the Christian life, though you will face those things, what you receive in the Christian life is a hundred times more valuable now than anything you've lost. And a big reason why that's true is because what you receive now endures in eternity. But the thing is, is you can't see the value through the per lens, through the perspective of the world, this present age. When, when Warren Buffett goes and buys all those shares of the company, he can't just go the next day and sell it and make a killing. He's got to wait for the market to catch up. He's got to have the patience and really believe this thing is more valuable than people recognize. And just wait 10 or the 20 years or however long it takes for people to catch up and recognize, oh yeah, that is a valuable company. And then all of a sudden the Price starts to increase, and then if he wants to sell it for a profit, then he can do it. When we think about the Christian life and the thing that we have, if you, for instance, lose a family member who rejects you for the sake of the gospel, I was reading some remarks by a man recently who was talking about how his father and his mother raised him. They, they were very anti-Christian, and he came to faith. And he had to deal with, as, he, as coming to faith, being rejected by his parents. 
or we read reports from places in the Middle East and other countries where a person might be killed by their family if they come to faith. And yet what they gain now is a title, child of God. And with that title comes a new family in the church. And with that comes the work of God in their lives to cause them to become steadfast in hope, full of faith and love, abounding in those things, able to persevere through all sorts of difficulty with joy and with gratitude. And the world's going to say, that's, that's worth nothing. But Jesus says, no, that's worth far more than anything you could have ever lost because it has value that will last into eternity. That's what he's promised us. And that's what the Thessalonians have received. And the evidence that they've received it is the fact that they are indeed abounding in these cardinal virtues that are the, the cardinal, the hallmark virtues of the Christian life. Because God is so working in their lives in a way that he does not work in those who are not his children. He's working in their lives to cause them abound in lo- to abound in love and faith and in steadfast hope. So Paul gives thanks to God. And as I think about our life together, I see the same reasons for gratitude. I see the same reason for thanksgiving. God is doing the same thing in our life as he causes us to demonstrate our love for him and our love for neighbor in this new context through faith in Jesus Christ and love for one another. And I urge you to do all that more and more, to grow in faith and to work out your faith more and more and to love one another more and more, even as I can give thanks to God as I see it in your life as I see you persevering. The perseverance that we express is different. It's in a different context. It's in a culture that's not beating down the door to destroy us, but a culture that just marginalizes people like us, looks at us like a little church down the street that nobody much cares about and people who are off the beaten path that aren't really important in the eyes of the world. And we could say, well, we'd rather go and do something that would fill us with a load of self-importance. We persevere. We hold fast our hope. We remain united in the faith to which God has called us. Instead of going after the things that the world craves, those things that would produce, uh, that, that, that would lead to influence or power or to wealth or something else, very often in our context, things that are contrary to the will of God. And I see here people living in that way. And I say live that way all the more. Most of all, I want to give thanks to God for that in your lives. I want to encourage you to express that same kind of gratitude day by day as you see God working in your life. Recognize that grace and give thanks to God. Not just for those little mundane successes in life, but for the way in which he preserves us and grows us in the midst of all the trials and difficulties of life. As we look forward to that day when God will finally bring an end to those trials and bring us into the fullness of his kingdom when our Lord and Savior returns. So let us live with that faith and hope and love. Let us live with gratitude as God causes us to increase in these things. Let's pray. Father in heaven, help us indeed to grow in these graces. Cause us to grow in these graces, Lord. We pray that you would so work in our lives that we would be so enamored with the gospel with the grace that you've shown us in Jesus Christ, 
with the love that you demonstrate to us even now as you cause us to grow in holiness, grow in faith, to increase in love, to work out that faith and to work uh, to labor uh, in labors of love toward one another. As we see those things, Lord, we pray that you would cause us to recognize that they are indeed gifts from you. So appropriately give thanks to you. We know that even a heart that is grateful is a grace from you. And so we recognize that we never stop finding reasons to thank you, our sovereign, loving God, who graciously bids us to call you Father through our Lord Jesus Christ. It's in his name that we pray.